0: Well, Fathers, we honor you today. We are thankful. yeah, it's, let's honor them. We are thankful for the role that you play, the essential role that you play in the life of your your children, your family, and even your community. And again, happy Father's Day to every one of you. As you know, we have been in a series. From the gospel of John, the book of John, and if we continued in the order of the scriptures, today I would be teaching you about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. But I have decided to put that off until next Sunday because right after that encounter and within the same chapter, chapter four, Jesus has an encounter with a father. And since today is Father's Day, I think it'd be very appropriate to reverse these two very important moments of Jesus' ministry. You know, if there's one thing that I have learned about good fathers in this world, it's how that they will go to any length to help their children. Because first and foremost, dads are doers. (laughs) We're not necessarily known for talking or processing our feelings. But we do a really good job at doing things. We do a good job at fixing things. We like to do that because we are comfortable with it. So when we are faced with a situation that we cannot fix, we feel helpless. And out of that helplessness, we often become desperate. And when we become desperate, sometimes we will try things that we've never, ever considered before to try to fix the problem. But in all honesty, when we are feeling helpless and desperate, sometimes it makes us feel better to do anything than to do nothing at all. So in our scripture reference for this morning, we are introduced to a father who is faced with a helpless situation. This dad has done everything in his power to help his little boy. Nothing has worked, but like the rest of us dads, he was a fixer, so he just had to do something. And in his amazing grace, God sends this dad to Jesus. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter four, and follow along as we read verses 43 through 54. While you're doing that, let me provide you with just a little bit of context. Jesus has just had this famous conversation with the woman at the well in Sychar, which as I said, we will actually study next week. After her conversation with him, this woman puts her faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and then she did something that was not typical at all for her. She ran into town, going up to people that she had previously avoided, because she wanted to tell them something. She said, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And because of her witness, many of the Samaritans in Sychar came to know Jesus and to put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of the things that you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And at the townspeople's request, Jesus and his disciples stayed there in Sychar for two more days. And I love what John wrote in John four forty one. because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. That'll kind of catch you up to speed where we are and what we're going to study today. So follow along as I read from John, beginning with verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee, speaking of Jesus. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. I want to go back and I want to focus more closely on what John describes in those 12 verses that we just read. And the first thing I want you to notice is John's little editorial comment that you'll find in verse 44. It is here where John tells us about Jesus' prior warning regarding prophets having no honor in their own country. And I think that John inserted this to highlight the irony of this particular moment. The irony is that the Jewish rejection of Jesus as opposed to the great success that Jesus had among their hated foes, the Samaritans. And here's another reason I believe that that John did this. He wants us to know that even though the Galileans treated Jesus congenially when he arrived, perhaps because they felt proud of their, their hometown hero, even so, John is letting us know that the Lord kept their goodwill in proper perspective. In any case, Jesus returns to Cana, perhaps to cultivate the seeds that he had planted when he did his first miracle there. And as he did, a certain royal official came up to him. Now this man had, had traveled a continuous uphill 18-mile journey from his home down in Capernaum. It was a six-hour journey by foot, two hours by chariot, And as a royal official, I am certain that this man rode there. Now speaking of the term where it says in the Bible, royal official, the word official in the original Greek is basilikos, and it refers to someone associated with royalty. So this man was probably from the court of Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, but I doubt that he was actually a part of the royal family. It's more likely that he was a Jew who was serving as an official in the royal court. In any case, this man was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth, he was a man of privilege, a man who wielded significant authority. He was important. He was influential. When he spoke, people would listen to what he had to say. But you know, it doesn't matter what kind of power and influence you have in this life, when something happens to your children, you still feel helpless. And as I inferred, helplessness was not something at all that this man was used to experiencing, which I am sure added to his overall feeling of desperation. And because of his position in life, his clothing, his mode of transportation, you can be sure that his coming to see Jesus did not go unnoticed. Plus, his demeanor did not fit his station in life. His son is, is, is laying and dying in Capernaum and he was imploring Jesus to come. In the original Greek text, it describes action that is either ongoing or repetitive. It tells us that within the urgency of his son's severe illness, that this official, well he kinda cast off all of his dignity and he kept on begging Jesus to come to Capernaum. So this desperate father had to cross much more than a 18 mile uphill journey to get to Jesus. He also had to make a social crossing as well. What I mean is that this nobleman had to lower himself to beg for help from a humble village carpenter and itinerant preacher. Here's another thing worth pointing out about this encounter. Since this man was an aristocratic Jew, it is likely that he was a member of the Sadducees. They were Jewish religious leaders who didn't believe that God intervened in human affairs. They did not believe in miracles. So, in, so, so this desperate father had to cross religious miles as well. But the journey that he made physically and, and socially and religiously showed that first and foremost, he was a dad and he was sick with worry over his dying son, his son that he desperately loved. We see this fatherly love in the words that's used regarding his son. In fact, there are three of them that are used in the original Greek text of what we read. Toward the end of the passage, in verse 51, when the servants came to, to give him a report, they called him Pais. That's just a plain word for boy. It indicates that they were familiar with him. It would be like if a friend asked you how your boy was doing. Then when Jesus refers to the boy in verse 50, he called him Huios, which means son. It's a more proper term. It it, it has more formality and dignity than simply calling him boy. It's like if I asked how your son is instead of how your boy is doing. But this father, he didn't use either one of these two words. This father called him padeon, Padeon is a term of affection. It is a term of endearment. It has the feeling of calling him his little boy. But it's not not so much a reference to his size or his age. It's more like when we say uh, that a daughter is daddy's little girl, no matter how old she gets. In short, this father obviously loved his boy. So not only was this man important and an influential royal official, he was also a father. And as a father, he had knelt by his son's bedside, feeling helpless. As the boy's fever continued to rise and he moaned in pain, as his dad tried to fix things, nothing he did worked. I'm sure that he had mustered up all of his influence and all of his financial resources to buy the best doctors that money could buy. I'm sure he had tried every home remedy and every potion known to mankind, but nothing had helped. This little boy's fever only got higher, his pain only got worse, as did this father's feelings of helplessness. So this nobleman, he gets to the point where he has to do something. Well, he's heard all these reports about this man named Jesus, who's been going around and healing people and doing miracles. He'd heard about how he caused quite a stir several months earlier at a wedding in Cana when he had turned the water into wine. And as he reviewed all of this, I'm sure he thought there must be something to all of these things that I'm hearing about because they, they really rolled out the red carpet when this Jesus returned to Cana. He left in obscurity but he comes back and now he, he seems to be famous. I'm sure all of these things were going through this father's mind as he sat by the bedside of his dying son. But there came this moment where he had to do more than just sit there. He had to fix things. So one day he headed up this long, steep road that led from his home in Capernaum to Cana to see if he could find this miracle worker. It was mid-morning, but he knew if he was to hurry that he could be there shortly after noontime. He could never have imagined what would happen when he arrived because when this man came to Jesus, he came out of desperation. He didn't come out of faith. He didn't come out of expectation. He came to Jesus out of sheer desperation. But as we just read, that's not at all how the story ended. Jesus took it from desperation to salvation and his son was healed as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's get back to the story. The man made the trip from Capernaum as fast as he could drive those horses. And when he gets into town, and when he finds out where Jesus is, he begs him to come to Capernaum and heal his son. But Jesus' response in verse 48 seems to be a bit heartless. It's almost as if Jesus doesn't care about the boy's physical healing. It's as if it is his secondary purpose, which if you think about it, it really is. Remember, Jesus came to heal our souls from this disease called sin. He didn't come to heal us for this life, he came to heal us for all eternity. So Jesus responds to this dad's request By saying this in verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, before you think Jesus was being insensitive to this desperate father, I must point out to you that when Jesus said you in his response, it was plural. Jesus was talking to more than this nobleman. He was rebuking the attitude of the entire crowd. All the people who had no doubt followed along with this nobleman when he got into town, they had this expectation that they were gonna see some kind of a miracle happen. They were only interested in the spectacular. They were not at all interested in what the spectacular miracles were a sign of. They just wanted to see some kind of a show. I don't know if you remember, but when we began this series, I explained to you that John doesn't use the same word for miracles as the other gospel writers used. John uses the word signs. In fact, every time sign, a sign is mentioned in the book of John, it points to the belief of some and the disbelief of others. It highlights the fact that some people want the tricks that Jesus can do for them without wanting to have him as Lord and Savior of their life. That is the attitude that Jesus is confronting here. Jesus was saying, you people won't believe who I am All you want to see is signs and wonders. All you want to see is magic tricks. You want me to fix your bodies, but you don't want me to fix your hearts. You want me to fill your stomachs, but you don't want me to fill your life. You want to order me around. You want to tell me what to do instead of allowing me to be the Lord over your life. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But Jesus' rebuke of the crowd didn't stop this father. Remember, he was desperate. His son was on his deathbed, and he pleaded with Jesus one more time. And when he did, Jesus said something that that led this desperate dad to a crisis of faith. His response would not affect his son's healing because Jesus had already taken care of that but it would determine the eternal destiny of both this dad and his entire family. Verse 50 says, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And at that point, the father had a choice to make. He could have doubted Jesus' promise that his son had been healed and stayed, continuing to pester Jesus one time after another about physically coming down to Capernaum or he could have made the right choice. He could have simply believed. He could have just taken Jesus at his word. He could have gone from the world's caliber of faith, what we would call a seeing is believing kind of faith, which really is no faith at all, or he could truly trust Jesus to do the opposite. He could simply believe without yet seeing, and John tells us that that's exactly what this desperate dad did. I think he looked, I think he really looked deep into Jesus' all-powerful, all-loving eyes, and immediately, the man believed. Without seeing, he believed that just as Jesus promised, his sick boy was now healed. And allow me to explain to you Why I say I believe the dad took this second option, because if you just read through that that story quickly, you'll miss it. Remember, it was an 18-mile trip back home, but it was downhill all the way. If this dad left immediately after his conversation with Jesus, he could have easily been home by mid-afternoon, probably sooner, depending on how rush hour traffic was. He could have done that thinking, I have to see it before I believe it. This Jesus could be false like all the others, and if so, at least I wanna be home when my boy dies. But that's not at all what this father did. John says this dad took Jesus at his word. He believed and he stayed in Capernaum, perhaps to hear more of Jesus' teaching, and then he casually departed for home the next day. We know this because the timing that John carefully includes in verse 52, when he inquired to his servants who were coming to greet him as to the time that his son got better, they said yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever had left him. So this man didn't start out to to home until the day after his encounter with Jesus. The day after Jesus had said, you may go. Your son will live this desperate dad believed without seeing and in taking jesus at his word and embracing that caliber of faith he saw so much more he saw that jesus was far more than some faith healer this dad saw jesus was who he claimed to be the messiah the savior of the world this fearful father put his complete faith and trust into our Lord. He embraced the kind of faith that Paul wrote about in Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And the next day when they heard what happened, this royal official's entire household, his entire family put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was their Savior. But it all started because this father took the lead. He humbled himself before Jesus. He took Christ at his word. He set an example for his entire family to follow. And they too followed And so on this Father's Day of 2021, I have a few words for the fathers here and for the young men who will one day be fathers. Gentlemen, I want to tell you that you, not only are you a fixer, but equally important is the fact that as a father, you are an influencer. I am not certain that you understand the reach of your influence. The reason I say this is because the world has done its level best to make you insignificant and to make you obsolete. To make you feel like you are no longer needed. They will lead you to believe that a solid fatherly influence within the context of your family just isn't important anymore. And sadly, many of us have bought into that theory, and as a result, as dads, we don't always influence our children the way that we should. And one of those areas of influence that that holds such great importance is in the spiritual realm, regarding the things of God. More and more, we tend to leave that up to our wives. But I'm here to encourage you this morning for you to take the lead. You have the ability and scripturally you have the authority to do so. You see, the, the Lord wants us as men to be the spiritual leaders of our households. Our kids should never have to guess where dad stands regarding the things of God. It's like the old scripture in Joshua twenty four fifteen says, as for me and my house, we, We'll serve the Lord. You see, as fathers, you can influence your children in many ways. And the truth is, when we do it, we do it well. I enjoy watching dads teach their kids about sports or how to fix their car, how to do yard work. I particularly love watching fathers telling, giving advice to their son on how to approach a young lady that they have an interest in. Well, the same thing should go with how to have a relationship with Jesus. Fathers, your kids need you more than ever before. They need your love. They need your wisdom. They need your guidance. They need to know that you are there for them. And as you know, they've got boatloads of questions Make sure that you offer them biblical answers to their questions because let me tell you something, there are a lot of answers out there to be found. Most of them are completely wrong and they will find those answers on their own if you don't give them the truth. So make sure that you offer them the right answer, the biblical answer. Help them to mold their Christian faith and their Christian character. Show them by example that you trust in God Statistics clearly show us that households with fathers who believe in Jesus and who follow his teaching and who display that to their children, they produce families who are much more likely to continue to serve Jesus throughout their lifetime. That's not to diminish the role of the mother, but statistically, when a dad is engaged in his faith relationship with Jesus Christ, his children will as well. And as we've seen in this story, in John chapter 4, This man's experience with Christ and his response to it is what ultimately brought his entire household into a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He influenced his family through his own faith, through his own trust in God that was clearly on exhibit for his family to see. So dads, I encourage you to be the leader in your home regarding the things of God. Display your trust in Jesus every day before your family. My pastor used to say more things are caught than taught. What he meant by that was when you live your life daily for the Lord, you put him first, you live by the promises found in God's word, your children catch that. They absorb that. And I am aware that if this is something that you have failed to do up to this point, you wonder where to start because it feels awkward. You're going, well, I've never done this before, so it's gonna be awkward when all of a sudden I start talking about God. But let me just say something to you. It is never too late to begin. Step by step, moment by moment, Situation by situation, start exhibiting godly values in your actions, in your advice, in your answers, and in your example. And I assure you that in time, it will become a constant for you, and your children will never doubt where dad stands when it comes to being a household of faith. Man, this is the greatest legacy that you can leave to your kids because it has eternal implications, nothing else does. And it all comes from your ability to believe like this aristocratic father in this story that we've read today, as he took the lead. He first had to cross that threshold of belief. And as I was thinking about this whole believing before seeing or believing before the evidence was in front of him. It reminds me of when we take communion together. We just did that last Sunday. In a very real sense, it is a symbol of our faith as Christ followers are believing and then seeing. After all, when we take communion, it's just bread. Anyone can see that. But as Christ followers, we believe that it is a symbol of so much more than that. It represents something that we cannot see, Jesus' body that was broken for us a long time ago. We look at the cup, and it's just a cup filled with juice, but we believe that it is a reminder of his blood that was shed on a Roman cross, and it is that blood that washes away our sin. The table, it represents the decision we have made to believe what we have not yet seen. It is to believe what the Bible says is true, and that Jesus really is God's only son who came to this earth to die in our place. But do you realize it's within our believing that we have actually seen so much more? The basic message of the Bible is God's invitation for us to put our trust in our faith, in his power, and in his love. It is to believe first and then see secondly. Do you remember the words of David in Psalm 34, 8? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. He's saying taste and see. Believe and see that the Lord is good. And any father and any family who takes refuge in him will be blessed. I don't know about you, but that is what I desire for my family, and I hope it is what you desire for yours as well. Liz, would you guys come forward and help me close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet, if you would. As we close this service, I wanna to speak to the Christians in this place first. And I want to ask you, is there an area in your life where you need to do that? Is there an area where you are desperate about something and what you need to do is to believe God? It could have to do with your finances. It could ha- have to do with your health, your marriage, your parenting, your occupation or your career. And after our study this morning, perhaps you realize that God is encouraging you to trust Him in greater ways than you've ever trusted Him before, trusting His love and His power and His infinite wisdom over your life. He is asking you to believe that He works in all things, in all areas, even those ones that you feel helpless in for your good. If that applies to you this morning, then I encourage you today to take the Lord at his word. Put forth enough faith to to trust that God loves you and is more than capable to help you to face whatever it is that's making you feel a bit desperate this morning. Believe. If you do, you will see once again that God is indeed good. And if you are here or if you're watching online and you are not a Christian today, I want, you to, I want to invite you to do what this dad that we just read about did. See, the truth is, the matter is that without Christ, we are all sick and we are dying from a terminal disease called sin. Jesus came because it was the only way that we could be healed. It's the only way that we could be set free from the sin. So this morning, decide and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Commit your life to him as Lord. John three sixteen, the verse that we dissected last week said whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life will you finally take Jesus at his word this morning I feel led to open this altar this morning to anybody who needs to believe maybe your belief meter is running at an all-time low and you need a refreshing of the Holy Spirit this morning or maybe you're here this morning and you've never really fully believed in Christ Jesus. You're just wandering around in the wilderness without God in your life. The book of Revelation, verse twenty-two, seventeen, tells us that right now Jesus says, come and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. And if that describes you this morning, can I just tell you that you are not here by chance? This is a God ordained moment in your life. God worked out the details for you to be here this morning so that you could answer His call. So if you thirst for a personal relationship with Jesus, then I encourage you to accept Jesus' invitation this morning. Quench your thirst. Receive this free gift. Others of you here today, you may feel led by God to make some other kind of a decision to help you to deal with your disbelief in an area of your life that you are struggling with greatly. I invite you to come forward. Come to this altar. Lay it down before the foot of the cross. And in your belief, God will save you. He will strengthen you. He will fill you. Whatever it is that you seek this morning, God will provide for you. While the worship team sings, let's come down to this altar, spend a few moments with the Lord, and then we will close this service in prayer. And if you're not going to come down to the altar yourself, I ask you to please pray for those who are down here, for whatever reason that may be. Those at the altar continue to pray, would you bow your heads with me? Precious Father, I thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the many examples that show us that if we would simply believe, you would show us amazing things. Our nature is to want to see the amazing things first and then to believe but God, you do it in the reverse. Help us to be a people of belief that we would never doubt your desire nor your ability to work on our behalf in every single situation. Father, that we would never ever feel helpless in a situation because we have you. This father in, in the book of John did not have you at that time. He relied upon his own resources. He relied upon his self. And we know that that is a recipe for failure. But God, we have you. We have your love, we have your power, we have your direction, we have your spirit indwelling us. Let us never doubt, but let us always believe that you have the answer to literally anything and everything that we go through. Help us, like the man in this story, to humble ourselves, to get ourself out of the way, and to allow you to do the work in us that needs to be done. You are faithful, and we thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you that when we believe, we will see even greater things. Let that be our testimony in this life, Father. I pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, places we go the things we do the conversations that we have that those conversations would all be designed to build up and not to tear people down that we would be bright lights in this dark world and that light would be the love of christ shining through us i pray that it would be that love shining through us that would open up doors for us to share your goodness with others and when those doors open father give us the courage to walk through them And allow you to use us and to speak through us to needs that are presented before us. I ask God that we wouldn't have to open our mouth. That people would come to us and say, what is it that's different about you? It's the love of Christ that comes beaming through. And that we would follow your lead. And we would speak of your goodness to others. Use us this week, I pray, Father. And before we gather together again next week, I ask that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from COVID, any other sicknesses or diseases that are there. Pray that you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, so that we can all gather together again in this place and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And throughout the week, Holy Spirit, help us to love like we've never loved before. Help us to to lead people to the cross of Jesus Christ where they too can taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the presence of your spirit, not just in us, but in this place, compelling us to trust in you and to believe in you more than ever before. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your blessings, and we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen Amen. and amen. Thank you for being here today.